Good morning, Ebenezer. How are you today? If you're joining us online or you're in the room, so excited again that you have chosen to worship with us today. And I mean, I mean worship. I stand up here today and I'm going to tell you I have a heavy burden on my heart today. A heaviness. As I was sitting down here and people began to move to the altar, part of me was in my mind going, thank God that we have a freedom in this church that we can do as God moves us. And I look around and I think in my, in my heart, I'm sitting there praying and I'm saying, God, what do your people need this morning? And I hope that as we dig into this passage today in the third chapter of 1 John, that you would hear the heart of a shepherd who longs for his sheep to be set free. Because as we dig into this today, what we're going to find, last week we talked about how God has perfected us and we agreed that that does not mean that we're unblemished. It means that uh, just like I saw a sign this morning uh, for the Tallulah Falls volleyball team who won state championship, they are state champs, but that didn't mean they didn't lose a few games. You and I are being made perfect in Christ because of what Christ did on the cross, not what you and I do. And today, we're going to move into the third chapter, and we're going to talk about transformation. Transformation, this idea that God does not want you to stay the way that you are. And I think that's why my heart is burdened today. Because when I look at culture, and I look at sometimes my Christian friends we spend more time trying to justify the sin we're getting by with than standing in freedom over that. That we would rather be right. Think about our culture right now. The biggest problem in our culture today is everybody's right. That sounds like the Old Testament to me, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it comes with a price. You and I could stand up here right now and debate about the gray areas of sin, but I'm going to tell you what is true Sin comes with a price. So you can stand convinced that, hey, what I'm doing is not sinful. Hey, it's not affecting anybody else. Yes, it is. You are entrapped in your sin. You are walking in darkness. You are walking in death. And that's not the plan of God for a child of God. In fact, I want you to go ahead. I'm, I'm all over the map with my notes, and I don't care. I want you to stand with me and I want you to listen to these two, first two verses in John, 1 John chapter 3. The Bible says this, see how great, let me stop there again, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, undeserving, unworthy, that we should be called the children of God of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be like. We know that when he appears, his second appearance, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Father, as we dig into your word in the next few moments, you know my prayer has been to set me aside, to set our agenda aside, to set our timepieces aside, and that God, in the next few moments, you would have a way with our heart. God, break us. 
that we can be rebuilt in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I looked at my notes, I want you to think back to when you were a child. Or maybe you have children or grandchildren now. And sometimes the innocence of being enamored by something in nature, specifically a butterfly. When my kids were little, we went to the Atlanta Zoo, and at that time they had the butterfly house. If you've ever been in a butterfly house, it's, it, it can be overwhelming. You walk into this, into this, in this room, and there's all of these butterflies flying everywhere, and they're beautiful. Some of you have a butterfly bush planted in your yard for the very purpose to see if you can catch a glimpse of maybe a monarch butterfly or a, or a specific kind of moth. I, I remember a few years ago, I found this moth that looked like bubble gum. And it was about this, it was about six inches wide. It was beautiful. It was, it was hairy and fuzzy. And when I picked it up, it, it just crumbled in my hands. It was delicate. And it, it reminded me of biology that out of all of the, the things in creation, the caterpillar is one of those things that has to go through a chrysalis. It has to go through a metamorphosis. It has to go through transformation. In fact, when you study that process, when it goes into that, that phase, the pupa stage, it's, that just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Pupa. The caterpillar, after it's done eating, its, it's hormones, the juvenile hormones begin to decrease, and it forms a cocoon. Now, from the outside, you can't see what's going on, but on the inside, catch this. It says that it dissolves, the caterpillar dissolves into a soup-like substance. Soup-like substance. That's nasty. If you don't think it's nasty, wait a few more months when the bugs start hitting your windshield. That's soup-like substance. It breaks down. It, it's, it's broken. It's disassembled. But then all of the parts begin to realign, and it comes out a totally different creature. You've, you've taken a, a caterpillar and let it climb on your hand before and just, just look at it and just go, God, this is so cool. And then to know that that thing becomes a butterfly. One of the most beautiful things that God has put on this earth. And it's, it's amazing to think how God put a process in place for that to happen. That actually undoes the argument for evolution. Let's just be real. You as a, as a being just turned into soup-like substance. And you came out a butterfly? How is that survival of the fittest? No, 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 no. What that is, is that's a very weakened moment of life. And guys, I'm telling you today, if you don't get anything else out of my message, God wants to break you. And he wants to turn your insides into soup-like substance so he can rebuild you into something different. And until I put myself under the love of God, we're talking about what is love. The love of God is such that he wants to take your life and disassemble it. Break it, mold it back into something that he can use. That's what God wants for your life, and it's what God wants for my life. In fact, when we, when we look at Romans chapter 12, verse number 2, this word metamorphosis appears, transformation, where he says, do not be conformed to this world. Are you sick and tired of trying to live up to the world's standards? This world doesn't even like you. It definitely doesn't love you. Why are we worried about the world? Why are we worried about what somebody has said about us on a piece of device or what their life looks like 
on Facebook and Twitter. Why should we worry about that? That's the world system when we should be worried about what God wants for us. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind. He says it again in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, with unveiled faces, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. See, you and I today stand in a great need. God has a world for us that's not in this world. And when we read this passage, he's, he said that we are, we are the children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. God is in the process of remaking you and you will be remade until you leave this world. That is God's plan for you and for me. And when we leave this world, that word trans, trans, uh, to be transformed is the same word used in the Gospels when Jesus was transfigured. And the three men saw him in his transfigured, his glorified form. We're going to know Jesus when he comes back. Remember the argument here. These people were teaching, these false teachers were teaching that Jesus couldn't have been fully God and fully man. Because remember, material things was evil, spiritual was good. And what he's saying here is, but when he comes back, when he returns from heaven, I will see him in his physical body because I will be just like him. When Jesus comes back, and he raises the dead. Those of us, the Bible teaches, those of us who are alive and remain will be transformed. We'll, we'll receive our glorified bodies along with those who have been raised from the dead. I don't know how it's going to happen. I just know it's glorious. And it's God's plan for you and me. God's plan is not for our soul to sit in heaven away from our body. Jesus is coming back. And we, those of us who have trusted Christ, Live in expectation, anxious expectation for the return of Christ. And that drives us and motivates us to want to live in transformation. So I'm going to give you the bullet points. I, ain't really, I don't really care if I get all the bullet points done. My goal today is to impress on you that we need to seek the transformation of God rather than self-focus. And when I get to that place... Only God knows what he can do with my life. And you've heard messages before about the chrysalis and the the caterpillar going in and coming out a beautiful butterfly. You've heard that before. I used a very cliche image, but it's one that I want you to understand that God wants us to change. And so I want to give you the first point here. How are we being transformed by the love of God? Point number one, God wants to change who you are. God wants to change who you are. We are his children. Let me read that to you again. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. If you have a King James today, there's an inconsistency in the way that was translated. If you go back to chapter 2, the word technia, which means children, was translated children in chapter 2, but when those translators got to chapter 3, they, they switched to sons. Well, that's not typically the word used for sons. In fact, what we see here is that we are in a position, a position of opportunity, not clout. See, to be called the son of God, there's only one son of God, right? His name is Jesus. 
But for the rest of us as children, I can be a son or a daughter of God because I'm a children of God. And this is an endearing term. He is trying to impress on them, look, you are children. And children ought to look like their parents. I mean, we do. A few weeks ago, I was playing with an Instagram filter. Have any of you done that with your kids? You know, these filters on this camera, it can stretch your nose out. It can make your ears floppy. I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff to somebody's face. I put it on the bald setting, and it took all of my hair off except my beard. Well, some of you know I have a, a, a baby brother, and I have an older sister. So I, I, I switched to the bald feature, which my brother has shaved all of his hair off like Crosby has, and, and I took that picture, and it was freaky. I sent it to my brother. He showed it to his girlfriend, and she couldn't tell the difference. I mean, that's how good-looking I am. No, it was like, I mean, he wrote back, he said, dude, she can't, I'm having to to convince her it's not me. You see, because all of us in this room, genetically speaking, look like our father or our mother or a combination of both. But what's even more than that is that today, the way that I speak, some of the mannerisms that I have, the way that I laugh, the way that I drive, all of those have been influenced by my parents. Why? Because I'm living as one of their children. I don't behave like some of you in this room because we're not related. I behave like my family because I spent 20 years in my parents' home. And for you, it may be, maybe you're adopted, but you still resemble, have mannerisms like your adoptive parents. Or maybe you were raised by your grandparents and you have mannerisms. You act like your grandparents. Folks, our Father is in heaven. And when He saves us, He wants us to look like Him. He wants us to talk like Him. He wants us to behave like Him. And I don't know eternal life until I do. See, there's three categories this morning we're going to look at. There's this category over here John's talking about where somebody is saved. They've accepted Jesus, and they're living in obedience to Him. There's another category over here where somebody's just lost and running away from Him. There's only two daddies mentioned in this chapter. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. But in this middle ground, though, there's those people, you, can't, you, you may be saved, but you haven't quite figured out who you're following. Remember, we talked about at the beginning of this series, all of us live in this spectrum of fellowship. We're either closely relating to the Lord or we're really far away from Him. Folks, I'm asking you, I'm begging you today, do not leave this room if you feel separated from the Lord. If you've been saved five years, 55 years, or 95 years, I don't care. If God's not working in your life, hit this altar before you leave and bask in the love of God and let Him change your life. Because you are a child of God and you need to stand in that security. I don't like the way that the world, the world, notice I said, uses that word kind of flippantly. They say all of us are children of God. No, we're not. Listen to what he said in John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, those is who, that's who he gave the right to become the children of God. My Bible reads a little bit different here. The world wants to convince you that everybody's a child of God. Therefore, God made everybody the way that they are, so just stay in your sin. That's the logical conclusion to that. But when I accept the fact, no, I'm a, I am a human being who was born into sin. And my life is broken. And the image of God, if there is an image of God, has been defaced. It hasn't been 
erased, it's still somewhat there. But the only way that the image of God in my life can be restored is when I accept Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of me. But folks, if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, the Holy ought to start living out of me. And I have to choose to participate by doing what he said in here, which is to follow the light. You know, it's funny to me, not in a ha-ha way, but a funny to me, how we can say, you know what, I know Jesus Christ. And I can look at a cross and imagine the ugliness of what Christ went through so that my sins could be taken away and still live in my sin. I don't know if there's any, anything more damaging to a testimony of the gospel than to say, I know Christ, but I'm still living in sin. Now, let me, let me, let me shepherd that for a moment. Some of us in here, we have some deep-rooted struggles, and we've tried everything we can do to get rid of that addiction or that, or that temptation or whatever it is. God's not up here condemning you. God is inviting you into a journey. Because for some of us, there's things that will be in our life from this point all the way till we leave this world. But there's a difference in pursuing my sin and pursuing the Lord. He's not saying in this chapter that I can't sin. What he's saying is he's inviting us into a different way to transform us. Look at point number two. God changes how we live. And the point there is that we pursue holiness. Listen to verse number three. He says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him. What hope? The hope of his return. His physical return. Everyone who has their hope fixed on this purifies, sanctifies, makes himself holy just as he is pure. See, that, that right there unraveled the argument that they were making where they were saying that Jesus couldn't have been the Spirit of God and a man at the same time. He was sinless. Jesus Christ never committed a single sin. And that's what they were trying to undo and un, un, unwrap was that they were saying, that no, this is not Jesus. This couldn't have been Jesus. There's no way that these two things could have coexisted. But without those two, two things coexisting, God could never make you holy. God wants to change the pursuit of your life. In fact, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm just going to read verse number 13, after he talked about being established in love for one another and being established in Christ, he says, so that he can establish your hearts without blame in holiness before God. And then he goes on down in chapter 4 and says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. We get uncomfortable with the word holiness. As we're Baptists. And there's a denomination called holiness. But let me tell you something. We need to respect the holiness of God and we need to pursue the holiness of God because God wants to make you holy. Holiness is not as much about the external behavior as it is the internal change. But when God changes me internally, my behavior will change. And if I don't deal with my sin, listen to me, look at me, really, just look at me. If I don't deal with my sin, I live in bondage. If I don't allow the Lord to take my sin away and trust that he's forgiven me, then I will continue veering down that path. I thought about this illustration earlier, but uh, when I was 16, I had a, 
I had the worst Camaro on the face of the planet. There was a V6 that came out back in the late 80s that Chevrolet put out, and I'm pretty sure it wouldn't run most lawnmowers. It was so weak. And I had gone down to visit my girlfriend who lived at the time in South Forsyth, and, and so I'm, I'm down there, and I had gone into a subdivision to turn around, and it was kind of drain, a, a drizzly and rainy like it's been lately. I couldn't see very well, and I'm taking this P-shaped curve. Well, at the top of the hill, the silt had ran out in the road, and I lost control. I was only going like 10, 15 miles an hour, and it pulled my car straight off the road and into a phone pole. You see, that's, that's the way sin is. You think you can drive on it. You think you can handle the car when you're in it. But this is what your steering wheel's doing, and it's pulling you this way. But God's invited you to take and get out of that car and get in a new one. He wants you and me to consider how our behavior. He wants to consider what God's doing inside of us, making us holy and need to live in that path. And if I don't, I cannot experience the abundant life that he's extended to us. You know, it's kind of like this. The other day I was driving to work and I got behind a dump truck and it was hauling really big rock. Y'all know where this is going, right? Man, it made me sick. It didn't bust my windshield. But what it did was they, they made a turn and as soon as they did, one rock slid off. It was about the size of a baseball and started just kind of froggering down the road. You know what frogger is, right? You know, the old video game. And it caught the underside of, my, of the front bumper on my Honda Pilot. Now, it's fiberglass, but it put a quarter-size hole in that fiberglass. And I was like, oh, my gosh. My family knows how OCD, OCD I am. Every day I've gotten out and I've gone, oh, my God, it's making me sick. But what if it was metal? And let's suppose that it hit that part and I just left it alone. What would happen to that spot? It would rust. And it's kind of like some mechanical issues you've had with your cars over the years. If you don't fix it, it does more damage. Folks, God's invited us to live a holy life. And I can choose to, to be here, experience the abundant life, or I can choose to live here and be miserable. If I claim to know Jesus Christ, then I want the freedom that comes in that forgiveness. But to continue stepping in this direction continues to pull me right back in the very thing that God Save me from point number three. God changes how we see other people. And this is important. I want you to look at verse number 11. I'm kind of skipping some verses. I'm just hoping that you will take some time in your studies this week to go back and look at this verse at a time. There's so much. In fact, I, I thought to myself this week, I really just ought to bust this up into like four messages. But I'm not. He says in verse number 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now there's five things. I call this the idea of one anothering. I made it a verb. You know, and this is the message that God is light. There's no darkness in him. And he's invited us to love one another. But he gets really specific here and says, If you hate your brother, you're pursuing death. It's the first time he has said that. Well, he's talked about darkness and light, but now he's talking about death and life. If I choose to hate my brother, I'm choosing death. In fact, I believe Jesus said it something like this. If you hate your brother, it's as, it's as if you have killed him already. What? Yeah, it is. Because the wages of sin is death. 
to even, even venture into that area. It's kind of like the analogy he uses here of Cain. Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4, Cain brings a, a, from his produce an offering, and Abel brings of his livestock. The Bible says that he had regard toward Abel's sacrifice, but not toward Cain's. We don't know exactly what it was about Cain's sacrifice. We don't know if, he, if, if, if something was said wrong or if he just went through and just started picking things right. We don't know anything about the process. But we do know from Scripture and from here, it had to do with his heart. He had evil intent. Ladies and gentlemen, you can come into worship with the intent of worshiping and have evil intent. You're like, what? That's messed up. I know it's messed up. And look at what happened. Cain hated his brother because God refused his offering and got his. The issue was jealousy. Cain had a jealous heart over his brother and he took his life. Come on, you've raised kids, you've been around kids, and you go, like, What are y'all fighting about? Well, he sat too close to me. What? He said, You're hitting your brother because he sat too close to you? Can you imagine what Adam and Eve thought? When they discovered, I don't even know how they discovered. Can you imagine with me for a moment what Adam and Eve had, how they had to find out, how they had to find out that Abel was gone? I mean, their family's not that big. There's, there's not neighbors. No one was gossiping about it, I don't think. But we do know the Bible said that his blood was crying out from the ground. So I kind of wonder if maybe, maybe they got to wondering where they were. And they went out there looking and can you imagine, because this has not been a reality. To our knowledge, no human being had died yet. And she looks down on the ground and she sees this blood. And maybe Cain was around and they're like, what did you do? Where is your brother? Or maybe Cain just left his body there. And that's the point that, that, he's, that he's trying to burrow down into this. And the, the point that he's making is the idea between us and the world that just like Cain hated Abel, the world hates you and me. And the Bible says in verse number 13, don't be surprised if the world hates you. And they said if, because sometimes the world might, have, might, might be okay with you. But the world is jealous of your righteousness. In fact, there's five blanks there under point three. I'm going to give those to you kind of quickly. Five ways, five ways to me that we pursue loving one another. First one is this, has nothing to do with the other person. It is I refuse to be defined by the world. Can you and I make an agreement today that the world, the world is leading us in the wrong direction? And it's very subtle. Culture is very subtle. You, know, you look at the, around at the way that we worship and the kind of songs we sing. Have you ever been to a foreign country? Churches don't look like this. They don't sing these same kind of songs because it's an expression of culture just like it is here. And we have to be careful about the way culture impacts our worship. Because what if, what, if, what if God's favorite music was Jamaican polka? I don't even know if that exists. I just made it up. But what if God spoke and said... I want you to sing Jamaican polka. Our guy, God, I don't even know how that goes. Um, I, I'm lost. Does that mean I can't worship the Lord? 
I mean, what if God's favorite thing is for you to sit on a lyre and play? Oh, I can't even. Some of you are like, I can't even play spoons. Guys, listen. Don't let the world dictate how you worship the Lord. And don't let the world dictate how you treat other people. We're in a, in a very, very emotionally charged society today that it doesn't take much to tick somebody off. But what the Lord is calling us today is to, be ref, to refuse that system. In fact, we need to refuse to hate other people. He says in verse 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. Jesus said in, in John 13, 34 and 35, one of my favorite passages, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I love, have loved you, so also you love one another. And then he messed it up. Because he said, by this all men will know you are my disciples. He didn't give you permission to judge the world. He gave the world to judge you by how you love one another. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. That turns it upside down. We're not here to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. Jesus said that. Our job is to beckon people to come into the presence of the Lord and the love of God, and that's evidenced by how we love other people. The third one is this. I sacrifice for the benefit of others. What, what kind of sacrifice? I sacrifice myself. Wait a minute. You can only die once. So if you're going to go to the ultimate sacrifice, remember Jesus said, he, and in fact he says it in verse 16 in a different way, we know this, that he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our life for the brethren. You can only die once, unless you're Lazarus, and then you die twice. But you can only die once. In fact, I, I recalled an old Bugs Bunny episode where Bugs and Daffy are competing on who can get the most applause in this one cartoon. They're coming out and doing all these little shows, and Daffy's like, you know what, I've got it. I know what I'm going to do. And he comes out in a devil outfit, and he starts drinking nitroglycerin and kerosene and all these different things. He takes a, a match, and he lights it and drops it in his mouth, and he explodes. And Bugs is like, terrific, Daffy, that's great. And then Daffy's like, well, the only problem is I can only do it once. God's not calling you to die, but God is willing to you sacrifice your life for the benefit of others. Let each of us not consider our own interest, but also the interest of others. Well, why is that important? Because that's the same love that God extended to you. He wants you to model. Remember, we're his children. He wants us to look like our daddy. In fact, if you back up into verse 8, he says, The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. You're either looking like God your father, or you're looking like the devil. And if I'm choosing to live in this middle lifestyle where I'm claiming to be saved, but I'm still living in the world, guess who I'm serving? I'm not serving God, I'm serving the devil. And no one wants to hear that. The fourth one under there says, I become generous to those in need. Verse number 17, but whoever has the world's good sees his brother in need and closes his heart, closes, choice. I willfully say I'm not going to help them. How does the love of God abide in him? I know you have to use common sense. Don't get me wrong, but if I close my heart off to those who are in legitimate need, I cut myself off from the love of God. God did not think about convenience when he sent his son. Jesus did not think about convenience the night before his crucifixion and even into his crucifixion. He didn't think about, oh, this is convenient. 
oh, this is going to hurt me a little bit. It cost him his life. How many of you men like, um, like having your beard plucked? I mean, my son and I sometimes, we'll be sitting there scuffling, and he'll grab the hair on my arms and pull it. And I'm like, dude, that stuff's not glued on. It hurts. And Jesus had his beard plucked out. He was beaten with a cat of nine tails 39 times. The passion of the Christ does not even come close to what his flayed back looked like. And he did it for you. And he's inviting us to be as generous in the way that we interact with other people. And that fifth one there is I express my love through deeds. What was the other day? Valentine's Day. How many of you bought you, bought you honey, a, a card, brought them a card or some flowers or some candy or you know, maybe sent them a text and said, Happy Valentine's Day. Those were deeds. You can tell somebody all day that you love them. He says in verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. He's invited us into a different path. Point number four. I'm going to go ahead and ask Caleb and the, and the team to come on up and get on the instruments. Because this is important. This is the best point. Because we've talked about our identity. We've talked about holiness. We've talked about how we treat other people. But this one's important. God changes where we stand with him. We have confidence. In Hebrews chapter 4, he said, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. And he's, in, in this passage, he's talking about our heart being condemning us. In other words, he, he comes out of this passage talking about giving and loving others, but then standing in condemnation of our heart. Why? Because sometimes we stand there and we're like, oh man, I wish I could do more. If you're here this morning and you're, you're sitting under that weight, because the last thing I'd want you to do is feel weight in the wrong way. There is a positive way shame can work in your life. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I just don't measure up, I'm not good enough, God doesn't love me, I'm telling you that is a lie of the devil. But he is inviting you into a different path. And that different path gives us the ability, as it says here in verse number 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if our heart does not condemn us, well, how does my heart not condemn me? Because I know who I am, I'm pursuing holiness, and I'm loving other indeed. If I'm doing those things, then when I stand before God, I have confidence. I can stand there, and as the passage is teaching, I can stand there and go, God, I need this. This is about prayer. That I can stand before the eternal God and say, God, I need you. I want to do your will because I want to live in this lane and I'm tired of living here straddling this fence trying to figure out what I want to go this way or that way. I want to be secure and focused on what God has called me to do. And he gave you and me something that enables us to do that. Last verse. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know this, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given. When you were saved, when God saved your life, he put his spirit inside of you. And he marked you as his. We're more than just sinners saved by grace. We're his children. God loves you with an everlasting love. I was listening this week and reading some articles about the Asbury Revival. And I, interestingly enough, came across the video of the chapel service that started it. That, that, that they had a chapel service, and once that chapel service was over, that revival has been ongoing ever since. The speaker's name was Zach Mer, 
Mere Krebs. I do not know how to pronounce that. And I'm sorry online if I'm, I'm pronouncing that wrong. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. But you know what he was preaching on? This is what blew my mind. You know what he was preaching on? When you scrub to the end of that message and he's giving his invite, you know what he was t- sharing with them? To step into the love of God so it would affect the love for others. What? The same thing we just talked about. Revival doesn't come by what kind of songs you sing. Revival comes when we're ready to repent. And so here's my two challenges to you as, as they start to play, because I'm going to wrap this up. Oh, for those of you that like blanks, love is seeking transformation more than being self-absorbed. You can't find freedom if you're going to be, you, you think by being self-absorbed, meeting your needs and fighting for things, that's going to get you. What I'm asking you today is are you willing to yield yourself like a caterpillar and become pulp and let God unmake you to remake you again? So here's the two challenges. Number one, will you do like Henry Blackaby said and do a sin inventory this morning and analyze your life? Not on your own perception, but say, God, look at me according to your word and your spirit and see if you find sin in my life because I don't want it anymore. And lay it at the altar. But here's the second one, and this one's hard. I'm just going to confess this one's hard. Some of you have carried a grudge with somebody else for far too long. He said to love one another. And that means one of two things. Either A, you need to go to some people and say, look, I'm sorry, I was a jerk and I want you to forgive me. And I'm going to do my best to not ever do that again. But the other side of that is true as well. You, you, you've harbored, you have harbored hatred towards your brother because of something they did to you. And you need to go and say, look, you know what, you did this to me? And I'm telling you today, by the Spirit of God, I'm making the choice to no longer hold it to your account. I forgive you. You want to see revival break out? I believe that's where it begins. Not in an emotional surge, but when we step into the love of God and ask Him to change our lives. Let's pray. Father, You know my heart. You knew my heart before this service and You knew my heart during this message that all I wanted to convey to them today was the invitation to step out of that sin lifestyle and get into a lane of freedom. But also, Lord, to do business with one another. Because we can't really say we're laying down our life for our brother if I'm harboring hate toward them. That wants death for them. I need to want death for myself and be willing to come to the end of myself that things can be made right. Lord, would you move this morning as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.